That was the beginning of Franz Liszt's Mephisto Polka, performed by pianist Jeffrey Swan. I'm Alan Winson, and this is Hunker Down, a production of Bar Crawl Radio. I talk with world-class artists who are not performing due to the pandemic. Classic violinist and friend Rolf Schulte recommended that I speak with pianist Jeffrey Swan, whom he described as a polymath, speaker of several languages, and a magnificent pianist. Rolf told me that Jeff has won several prestigious piano competitions, including the Queen Elizabeth Piano Competition in Brussels, and then the Ciani Competition in Italy, and a prize at the Chopin Competition in Warsaw. The last few years, he has run a musical festival and teaches at a conservatory in Italy. Mr. Swan is also a composer and studied with Darius Millot, lectured on Wagner at the Beirut Festival, and presently he teaches at NYU's Steinhardt School of Music. A recording with Rolf Schulte and Jeffrey Swan performing Igor Stravinsky's violin music, recorded for the radio in Cologne, West Germany, in 1979, is coming out any day now. Of course, 1979 was a long time ago, and today I'm sitting on a Central Park bench behind the Metropolitan Museum of Art with the talented pianist Jeffrey Swan. I spent the first half of the um, lockdown period pretty much living in Central Park. <laughs> um, because I live just on West 75th Street on the other side. And, um, but I never completely got used to it. It's funny, I lost 20 pounds the first half of uh, the lockdown and gained it all back the second half. It's just uh, weariness. Yeah, and I think that in a funny kind of way, it's worse now because, I mean, like, we're, for months and months and months, this glimmer of hope in the far distance was we would someday be vaccinated. Yeah. Well, now we're vaccinated, and of course, there's still a ways to go. I mean, at first we were, like, in a state of shock. Yeah, we were, it was kind of novel. Yeah, that's right. And, and I, I mean, I didn't know, I had no idea what was going to happen with me. And whether I was going to economically survive, professionally survive, whether I was going, I mean, these are all things, of course, we'll talk about. Um, I had no idea whether I would, um, just getting from one day to the next. Also for my wife, it was a disaster. Um, so, you know, thank God, I mean, at least there were the two of us. And of course, for months and months, that was usually How do person. people do it or alone? You know, I think that the psychological damage, as well as the social and economic damage, is going to be something that we're going to be discovering for months and months and yeah. months to come. One of the wonderful things about NYU this year is is that um, starting in September, we already started doing in, in-person teaching, which had also, I mean, first thing, it, it, in the past, I'd always taught pretty much it, in my home. But now I have to go down to school, of course, because of the protocols are very, very, very strict. But because of the strict protocols and the fact that I have to test every week and have had to test every week since August. Oh, your nose um, must be raw. It's gotten used to it finally, but at first it was something. It was an yeah. ordeal. Um, but because of that, I've always had some contact with people. I mean, sure, mass people at a distance and things, but some contact. Actually, Sunday of, the, what, four days, three days ago, was the very first time that I actually like went to something like a party. There were like eight of us, all older, fully vaccinated. We listened to music. And it was like all of us, for all of us, it was the first time. It's just amazingly... At first, you're kind of almost shy, you know. You know what? Can, you know, I, I mean, know we're so used to being separate, separate and distant. But the, the, I do think that the people who are when I think about like grandparents who are unable to hug their grandchildren or see their grandchildren, or I mean, we all know these cases of people who, what I call the 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 um, 
sort of indirect casualties who died of COVID in a way, even though they didn't have COVID. For instance, um, a good friend of mine um, lived with his wife, a doctor. He's the doctor, and he has he's a has diabetes and had to be he's got prosthetics. He had to be fitted for new prosthetics. So because of that, he was in rehab, and rehab, of course, is a completely closed environment. Right. So he couldn't see his wife, and um, uh, even though he was fine, it was just it was just just basically waiting for the time, you know. So she didn't come one day. She she came and waved through the window at him every day. That's all she could do. Uh-huh. So one day she didn't come, and if, if make a long story short, she had died in her sleep of a heart attack, and. Oh, yeah. um, and of course, he kept saying, "If I had been there, you know, she would have said, i 'I'm not feeling well, honey,' and they'd take me to the hospital, and she'd have been fine." Because evidently, it wasn't one of those cataclysmic "bam, you're dead" kind of things. It was a longer event. And and, and he knew that she had a condition. No, and... she had no condition. There was no, um, uh, no, but wow. she, but but she undoubtedly felt ill for a, quite a while. Um, and then he basically lost the will to live and just died. He just they they, oh they, they there were some cures they wanted to do for him. He said, "Forget it," and so he just died. So you know, I mean. No, they didn't die of COVID, either one of them. But if it had not been for COVID, I feel certain they would have been both alive. There must be so many of those stories. Oh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. People who need treatment and can't go in for the treatment? Well, you know, this is, I don't know the the circumstances very well, but a a good friend of mine, well, someone I played with several times anyway, um, uh, Yohanathan Barak, a um, very fine Israeli violinist who lived in Toronto, um, who was something of a health freak. That's one of the people who was always on some very extreme diet, and let you know about it and let you know why you should be on it. One of those. Uh, and, yeah, I've, yeah. I've, I've, I've got a good friend like that. Yeah. Yeah. And his always change. But anyway, Too much fats, Alan. Too yes. much fats. Yes, or then, then no fats, or then whatever. Yes, right, yeah. exactly. Um, he was, anyway, um, when, when COVID hit last March, he said, we're not leaving the house for anything. You hear the kind of, these are the kind of people who said, you know, we're hunkering down for good. I'm not going out of the house for any reason whatsoever. Everything is going to be delivered and left on the front door. You know, this, okay. So about a month later, he started having a stomach ache. Yeah. He said, ah, it's just ulcers, it's just worry, it's just frustration. Finally, it got so bad, he, he couldn't move. Finally, in like October, his wife got him to go to the doctor. Well, he had stage four stomach cancer and died in three weeks. Oh, God. And so, you know, again. Wow. Again, you know. I mean, it's, it, that's a very drastic story, and I don't know that, yeah, who knows. But it does seem very possible that if he'd have gone to the doctor in May, when he first had the He'd symptoms. have a few more months and he might know, be, chemotherapy or been, yeah. Who knows? Yeah, stomach cancer is not necessarily fatal. So anyway. So um, we're talking today with Jeffrey Swan. We've just been gabbing here on a park bench right behind the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And the sun just came out. And um, what is, is that a cherry orchard there? Yes. And that, well, that's a magnolia tree there. The magnolia, right? It's a, it's a, um, a saucer magnolia. Uh-huh. That's what I, I, I discovered. And yeah. we have a beautiful pink tree down the ways here it's a gorgeous day it's a little cloudy oh that pink tree is fantastic yeah yeah and the this one up in front of us is some kind of an apple crab apple then there's other crab apples in the, the great lawn which are just starting to come. this is so. the best time in the park yeah and this, I can't, this in october i can't tell you how thrilled i am to do an interview person to person yeah live outside with people, Li- live yeah. outside with, with an actual live person you were born in arizona correct and you grew up i guess in dallas Right. I lived often on in Arizona and Dallas, in Dallas area, until I was tw- 11, 12. And then I was there through high school. Um, and I actually went to, uh, went to high school in Dallas and studied in Dallas. My family lived... What part of Dallas? North Dallas. I went to St. Mark's School of Texas, which is... Uh, and I studied music at the time at SMU. 
the, the reason kind of why I graduated we from SMU. Look at that. From the theater department, yeah. I um, Carruth Auditorium. Um, <laughs> and McFarland, of course, the big theater there. Um, yeah, that's right. I was like 11 years old, and there was a fantastic piano teacher who had, was really one of the, kind of the uh, avant-garde of the idea of artists in residence. Alexander Uninsky. Right. right. And he had been teaching at Juilliard. He had terrible arthritis, and he, he was reducing his amount of, of, of teaching and, and also of playing. And so he took this cushy job in, in Dallas. And he didn't want to teach me uh, because he didn't teach kids. Um, actually, he was going to teach me a lesson. He had me come in and play for him. I was 11 years old and brought the entire faculty in. He was going to really, he was teach my mother a lesson. It wasn't me. My, he, he thought my mother was one of these very pushy uh, stage mothers, which she was not at all. And, and he, he, he staged this, so he brought other... Other people in, the idea being that he was going to show my mother... To embarrass her. To embarrass her. But instead, after I was like three minutes into the piece, and of course, I wasn't used to these very European people, he leapt up from the couch and started embracing me with tears running oh down his God. face. So it, was, it, it turned out differently than, than, than he had planned. Did you know you were that good when you were 11? That's a good question. Um, I would say, in a way, yes, but it hadn't really... What had not happened yet was the ramifications of what that meant. In other words, I was, up until that time, I was basically just a kid. I was a kid who played the piano. Well, um, what else did you do as a kid? Did you play baseball? Did you? I did. I played softball. I played basketball, even though I'm short. And I was a good, I, was, I used to spend hours shooting free throws. Um, no, yeah, I, I played with the guys. I mean, I did, you know, when I was a little small kid, we played hide and go seek in the dark and built forts in the snow in Arizona and the mountains. And, you know, I mean, all the normal things. But um, once I started studying with Uninsky, and I was off to a boarding school, I, there was no, you know, I was not living in an environment. I wasn't in New York City. I wasn't in an environment where there was any kind of realistic competition for me. There was no realistic environment. There was no, I had no contact with other people. It was really just me kind of on my own. If I was going to become an artist, if I was going to grow and learn, if I was going to be, you know, an art, this, this idea of the artist, this, 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 and Uninsky was big on that. You know, sort of, we are not just players of the piano, we are sort of soldiers in the culture of, in the, in the, in the history of human culture. We represent a, a heritage and an undertaking and an ongoing thing. And, you know, I was 11, 12, 12 years old, I guess. So what and, did that mean to you? Probably not much. Well, it, it started to. What it meant was is that I got up at 4.30 every morning on my own and uh, spent all my free time practicing and composing. I was a composer back then. And... Um, uh, had no friends. I finally, then I had one friend who was also a musician, and all we did was listen to music, and didn't didn't go on a single date the whole time I was in high school. Sound like an egghead. Oh, tremendous! I was a, val- a bit of a nerd. Valedictorian in my class. Well, kind of a super nerd, except a funny kind of nerd because, of course, I spent my time practicing. Right. So, and and I don't think my classmates didn't have this clue what to make of me. I was also extremely arrogant, um, very much you know um, ivory tower, very much the I'm the artiste, and I had my vocation. So you picked up the characterizations of your teacher? To some extent, yes, although I don't think he had ever lived that, because he had always, when he was my age, he'd moved to Paris and was studying at the Paris Conservatory and was living in an environment. So when I came to New York, when I was 17, to study at Juilliard, in a way it was a big change, because then I was all of a sudden in an environment surrounded by other people who were more or less like me. Right. Um, uh, But I still, I had, but during that period, those years in Dallas were really, for me, the formation periods of both... um, you know, what kind of musician I was going to be, what kind of discipline I was going to have. Um, um, also, in a very long, I had no idea that I would ever teach or never thought about it really, but actually, to some extent, what kind of teacher I would be 40 years later. I, mean, I didn't really start teaching until I was um, 
in my 50s. Right. So that we're talking, you know, many, many years, later, 35 years later. Uninsky was not the kind who spent a tremendous amount of time with, you know, how to hold your hand position and, uh-huh. and doing everything. He spent a lot of time talking about sort of the historical, um, philosophical context of each piece and the background and the creative process and, and the other arts interdisciplinary. And that's precisely the kind of person I am and the kind of teacher I am. That period left an enormous mark on me. Actually, in an interesting way, um, f- much strong. I mean, there were other things that happened when I moved to New York. For one thing, I started going to the Metropolitan Museum almost every. every right I went every. I went every. In those days, it was free, if you can remember. I went Wait, before, every. Before we get before we get there, I always like to ask a musician, especially mm-hmm. someone who is at the level that you're at, mm-hmm. or the level that, that Ralph Schulte is at, is how do you choose your instrument? You started at four. Okay, for me it was really simple. My yeah. mother's a piano teacher. My mother was a pianist. My grandparents, my grandmother was a pianist. Or, I mean, in, a, in an Orthodox Jewish world where there was no real options. But she, um, when she got married in 1921, she and her husband, who were very you know, poor, modest people economically, bought a Steinway. And um, people pointed out that, gosh, you don't have a dining room table. And they said, well, you can eat on anything but a Steinway. <laughs> so, you know... I was born in a culture of, 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 of piano because my mother was a piano teacher. My older brother and sister took piano lessons. So I started playing by ear when I was very young. And um, um, so it, the piano was kind of a given. There's no, I do think that I'm kind of um, born to be a pianist just for certain sort of things. But um, it's always an interesting question, you know, what would I have done if it had been in a different environment? Right. I mean, the other question is, you know, if you were to play another instrument, what would it be? Or if you were in another environment, what would it be? You are a musician at heart, so uh-huh. you've been something. Okay, my, my, I have, in my past, I have a terrible voice. I can't carry a tune. But in my past, my great-grandfather, his father, and his father were all cantors, Hazanim, in Eastern Europe. So they were musicians, in other words. So, you know, I mean, and I think that the, the, being a cantor was, in the in the Orthodox Jewish community of Lithuania, that was pretty much the only outlet, that or, or playing, you know, like Klesmer. And I think Kletzmer came along later, actually. I mean, that was the 19th century, really. So, um, yeah, I mean, um, and of course, then the world is full of people who never find, who probably have just as much talent, but never have the chance to have an outlet. You know, they don't or, find it. No, or, I mean, maybe in a very traditional society, you know, in a, um, they might just, because they're storytellers or singers. or And after all, being a, a concert um, pianist or a, a musician is, in a way, a kind of storyteller. All performers are kinds of storytellers. We don't tell stories in words, we tell them in music and in sort of a cultural context. So I, I think that probably I was doomed to, to be a musician one way or the other, and the piano was kind of because it was there. Yeah. A cantor or a pianist? It would have been one of the uh, other. Yeah, yeah. No, so I, I, I just, except I have no voice. Yeah. This, this, this next, well, okay. <laughs> that, that may have stopped you. Yeah. When did you meet Rolf Schulte? Because um, 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 you continue to work with him today. Yes, off and on. Not as not nearly as often as we did. There was a intense. We had the same manager, German manager, who, if I'm not mistaken, actually it was he who got her interested in me in the late '70s, early '80s. We played also other concerts. We played in Darmstadt. We played in Berlin. We did some other stuff in um, in, in Cologne. But we also played some here too in New York. Um, Rolf was part of Speculum Musicae, which was um, represented by young concert artists. And in 1974, I won Young Concert Artists and became one of theirs. And so we probably met that way. Right. Um, also, see, there's there's a side reason why. That's what we, he said. He, he said that uh, when you two were very young, you were part of the Young Concert Artists. Artist, and, and he was. And he you was, were doing New York debuts, and his debut was at Town Hall. Where was your debut? 
My debut was at, um, um, they just moved from Town Hall, actually. So my, my debut was at uh, Hunter College. Oh, okay. Hunter College. My debut was February 75, and his might have been a couple years before you that. remember what you played? Yeah. Um, I played uh, Beethoven Opus 10, number three, um, Messiaen, uh, Le Mer Bleu, big piece from the Catalogue d'Oiseau. Um, I played Petrushka, uh, Three Moments of Petrushka, Stravinsky. Um, I played. I know I played some Chopin. I think I played the Fourth Ballade, and something else by Chopin. So the, by well, and large, I remember. Yeah, a wide variety of yeah, of, of but, choices. but but in, what's significant in that? I mean, it, it doesn't seem like much t- in, in in 2021, but it's the inclusion of, of the Messiaen, which is a piece written in 1960. Um, so that was modern music, no question. And see, um, uh, if you were to look at the, the overwhelming majority of, of, of debut concerts in New York City in 1975, you wouldn't find many pieces like that. I mean, that's not... Um, Petrushka, maybe, yeah, but that would be the modern piece. And this is probably also why um, Rolf and I got together, because I, I was a composer. At that time, in 1975, I was still composing, although it was starting. I It sort of died out of my life for all kinds of complicated... Uh, kind, some, some, a little bit mysterious and maybe not reasons, but when I came to Juilliard, I came as a double major. I mean, I thought of myself very much as a pianist composer. But the kind of music that, and this probably was maybe the seeds of why I stopped composing, because the kind of music I wrote was very contemporary. The kind of music I played, because of the, just the background and making a living and things like that, was completely different. I played very little music of the sort that I composed. So you didn't do electronic music? I, I um, never wrote a piece uh, very, I just, um, pottered with it a little bit. There was a teacher at Juilliard named Mario Davidovsky, who was one of the real... Um, I talked with Ralph Schulte about Davidovsky okay. recently. Okay, well, Davidovsky was at Juilliard, so there was... I mean, And I took a class with him, also Vladimir Ustashevsky, with... Um, um, when I was... At, I studied with Roger Sessions at Juilliard, but also at that time, you know, Milton Babbitt was at Juilliard. Oh, these are all the big names, electronic yeah, music. Yeah, yeah, well, and then, of course, there was also the big Elliot Carter. The thing with the Juilliard composition department was is that it was extremely disparate, and they all hated each other. Um, which is nothing new with that. Um, there also was like Vincent Persichetti, who's a very conservative Americana composer, and, and, and Peter Menon, who was the president of the school, who was also a very conservative tonal. Um, and, and so you had these, and then there was also um, Luciano Berrio, the Italian composer, who, this very eclectic, who wrote some electronic music and who wrote some sort of um, almost Dadaist kind of music, but also he wrote a wide swath of different kinds of music. So. Let's listen now to an example of the sort of music, the sort of modern music that Jeffrey is talking about. Here's Jeffrey Swan performing the ending of Charles Warrenin's Piano Sonata Number no. 2.
was um, it was actually a fantastic time. But I, I got very, very disenchanted because um, I was very idealistic. I, I had no illusions about the world of pianists, about competitions and cutthroats, and, and that a lot of pianists were not very cultured, not very interesting people, spent 14 hours a day practicing the piano, never read a book, never, you know. But I had an illusion that composed. I always think of a pianist as being smart. Like a concert pianist is like you're... Well, the only reason that the only reason that might be true, the only reason, as opposed to let's say another musician, is is because we have so much more repertoire and it takes we have to practice more. There's no there's there, 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 that one. There's no competition with. We practice far more than anybody else. Um, for one thing, we have so many more notes to learn. We also have a far bigger repertoire. No one has a repertoire that can touch ours. Also, there's another very important factor, though, that the conditions pianists, why pianists, I think, are profoundly different from other performers. We do all of our work alone. You know, if you're a young violinist, even a young violinist, 13, 14, 15 years old, and not even necessarily all that advanced, you're going to be playing with the pianist and the accompanist. And you're going to probably play in a string orchestra or an ensemble or an orchestra. In other words, you're spending a lot of your life playing with other people. Right. But except for, like, playing forehand music with one friend of mine, <clears throat> until I was, until I came to Juilliard, I never played with another human being in my life, except as a soloist with orchestra, which is a whole different thing. I think pianists are arguably, maybe with the slight exception of oboe players, because they're always concerned about their reeds, the most neurotic of musicians. I think that we're more neurotic than any other, because of all this time alone. And also, there's another factor, which may be why you think pianists are smart. We play more music by memory than anybody else. That's just a con there's conventions. There are other other reasons, not just conventions. You, you all just look smart, and and Rob Schulte told me you're smart. Well, I'm so. smart, yeah, but that doesn't mean <laughs> pianists are. Right. And that was one of the things I was dis disillusioned about composers. I thought I was smart because I was also a composer, and sort of not just smart, but for instance, when I came to New York, the first year I was in New York City, 1969, 1970, I was 17 years old. I went to 100 concerts. Because it was, as a Juilliard student, you could get free tickets to just about everything. Nice. And, you know, I went to operas, I went to string quartets, I went to choral, I went to everything. And I went to the museum, and I went to the Frick, and I went to MoMA, I mean, MoMA less maybe, but it was more expensive. But, um, and I was astonished to see that the other guys didn't. Mm. And, okay, so I figured, well, at least the composers will, because they've got to be interested in hearing other music. And I found they didn't either. So I became very disenchanted. Wow. Um, which may have had some factor in why I stopped composing. Yeah, I just want to change the, uh, um, the focus a little bit here. Early in your career, and I guess early in a lot of young pianists' career, is that you enter into competitions. Mm -hmm. And the competition is very big. And I know you gave a... A talk just recently about competition, piano competition. I did actually. Right. And so yeah. maybe that's why I'm asking you. What 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 is a piano competition like emotionally for the young artist who's trying to make a name for him and herself? To answer your question, I think it hasn't changed so much. I think it's fairly much the same. That first thing, the competition represents something which um, is one of the factors that's so hard about being a young musician, which is that you don't know what you're working for. Hmm. You don't have a, you know, if, if, if I want to be a neurosurgeon, I have all these various basic tests I have to pass and various things I have to do. What do, you, what do and you then do? you get hired as a neurosurgeon. Yeah, exactly. But what do you, you know, so as a, as, a, as a pianist, you say, well, what do I have to do? And so this gives you a goal. Now, it becomes, I think, um, counterproductive at a certain point, but still, you, so you, you work up a program so that you have a chance to play it. So there's just in itself. So it's an outlet for your, it's, it's for your an, talent. It's an outlet. It's, and, of course, then you, it's also, <clears throat> although you don't see it that way at the time necessarily, 
Um, it's very practical. I, the, the big thing, the thing I tell, I just wrote a letter today to a, a, a pianist who plays with me every once in a while who's in the finals of the Rubenstein competition. And I wrote um, a sentence that was told me a long, long, long time ago, but which meant nothing to me at the time, but now means a lot to me. I said to him, I said, just remember that you don't play one bit better because you win or one bit less well because you lose. In other words, competitions have very little to do with artistic quality. So how do you win? Well, I mean, you win because because you impress enough people or the circumstances are right or you play well, sure. But it doesn't mean that you're better that you won than if you hadn't won. It, I'm, I'm not I'm not it's not that I'm because I'm gonna, I, can I say because maybe it's only one competition rather than a series yeah and it's like but, on another but, day but, someone else might have been better no, than you no, sure but that's true but the point is is that what does better mean <laughs> okay that's what that's what I wanted to ask you yeah. because you now judge competitions yes yeah, some and um, what do you look for as a judge maybe something that you know I as a as a non-musician I would never be able to hear it okay well but first you listen the, for it yeah I mean the the, the primary reason even though I'm very, not cynical, but <clears throat> I have grave doubts, reservations about the artistic value of competitions, and even their professional worth today, other than giving goals. You see, at least in my day, if you won a big competition, especially not my day so much, but just before my day, like in the 50s and 60s, if you won the Queen Elizabeth like I did, or, or, or Van Cliburn or, or Chopin competition, you were pretty much guaranteed a career now it may not be a sustaining career because you you you, you know you, your nerves couldn't handle it or your health couldn't handle it or people didn't like you or you lost it or whatever but nevertheless it but of course in today's world that's simply not true for a variety of reasons competitions don't play at all the role today that they played when I was a kid um, so but I now that I judge a competition the main reason I do it actually is because I feel like that I owe it I, I, my career, for better or for worse, benefited a lot from winning competitions. It's, the irony is, of course, a young concert artist was one, but I would have expected the most from the Queen Elizabeth, which was thought of as kind of one of the maybe the greatest competitions. But it really didn't do that much for me, not really. Whereas this competition I won in Milan, the Dino Chani, because it was the first time, it was at La Scala, there was like Pellini and Argerich and Abato, and there's an incredible jury. And um, it kind of took, and my whole life went a completely changed directions. Italy. Uh, that was in 1975, and since then, Italy's actually been the second home, my, the second center of my you life. You do spend a lot of time in Italy. I spent a lot of time in Italy, and and for a while, I mean, I was the director of a big festival in Italy. I was the director of a very big music uh, concert society in Italy. So I'm involved in Italy on a lot of levels, or have been, and um, obviously, in the world of COVID, I'm not. I haven't been. To, I haven't been to Italy since. Oh, you'll get back. You'll I know. Back. I haven't been since November 2019, which is I used to go six or seven times a year. But um, so going back to your question about judging. I guess what I look forward for the most is, uh, I'm going to answer this question, I'm going to say it directly, and then if you don't mind, I'm going to give an, an anecdote. All right. Which is, which I love will, anecdotes. Which will help explain also what I, what I try to do by telling what I try not to do. Um, <clears throat> I try to find people who move me and interest me. I would rather somebody who does 20 things that I don't like, but one thing that I really like. Than somebody that surprises you, yeah, even that surprises me. But that I really than somebody who just plays well. I mean, of course, I I I, I like people with good scales. I like people who, with good articulation. I like people who can master difficult pieces. Don't get me wrong. Ultimately, I like people who excite me, move me, surprise me, 
And so I basically look for positives. So the, the anecdote is, I was judging the Queen Elizabeth competition, which is, I did that a few times because I won it, so they invited me back. The, during, that's a competition that now has very strict rules. The judges are not allowed to talk to, amongst themselves at all, even though it's a month-long competition. We stay in different hotels. We can only speak sort of in session with outside uh, people present. But there was one funny time. We were sitting out, on, out in the hall, and there, somebody broke a piano. There was like a, not a, more serious than a string, like a hammer broke. And so they, but we were running a little late. While they were playing it. Yeah. So we were running a little late, so they said, we'd like the jury to stay in their seats. And while the, the technician comes and repairs the piano, because it's not the time of, you know, going, filing back to our room and stuff. Got it. So we're sitting there, and I had noticed this, this Belgian gentleman who was on the jury, whom I didn't know, sitting next to me, and very nice, seeming nice man. I mean, I didn't know him. Um, always brought the scores of every piece that people played, which is a lot of music, and had these very elaborate graphs this gra- in colors. And he was meticulously filling these things in. Just I, And so, you know, this, we're just sitting next to each other in the middle of this hall. There's, you know, a thousand people in the hall. And um, I say, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by your graphs. And he says, oh, yes, you know, maître, maestro. I've worked out uh, over the years as an older man. At that time, I would have been in my 30s. So he was older, probably 60 or something. Um, he said, you know, I have a system where I have a, a very, very exact value of deductions. So if someone makes a pedaling mistake, it's this much off, a stylistic mistake. So he's looking for off. mistakes. That's right. That's right. Basically, every competitor comes on stage as 100, with maximum, let's say. And all they can do is hurt themselves. The only thing you can oh, do is God. hurt yourself. Okay. Now, this is not a dishonest man. This is not a corrupt man. This is not a, uh, a wheeler and dealer in competitions where saying, I'll vote for your student if you vote for mine. Now, that does exist, too. Yeah. Or people say, I hate his teacher, so I'm going to destroy the student. That exists, too. No, this was a nice man who was voting, and he thought, a very fair way. But to me, it was complete anathema. The, the follow-up of the story was kind of funny. And he said, so how do you, do you have a system? And I said, well, kind of, yes, it's sort of the reverse. I said, to me, everybody comes on stage as a zero. And I start adding as they do things I like. And he looked at me sort of in bewilderment and said, oh, but that's very difficult. <laughs> C'est très difficile, ça. And of course, he's right, but, you know, I mean. Um, um, I mean, the whole point is not to make any mistakes. Where does the beauty come in? Well, and this, but doesn't it happen very often? One of the things that's often reproached of contest winners, very, very often, it's not always the case, but it's very, very often reproached, is the competitions are all too often won by sort of bland, faceless, anonymous people. And that would be as a response to what exactly I'm talking about. If enough people vote that way, you're going to get sort of the person who offends the fewest. There have been very strong personalities who have won competitions. Radu Lupu won two competitions, and certainly he had a very strong personality. There have also been a number of very strong personalities who f- famously didn't win competitions. Yeah. And, and, and then there are other kinds. There are people I had, um, won't mention his name, a friend that Rolf also knew, um, who was as fine, admired, a pianist and musician, extraordinary pianist, I mean, with extraordinary technical skills, but also musical understanding, who basically never made it to the second round of any competitions. And, you know, we all thought of him as one of the greatest pianists around. He passed away. 
Some people just don't do well in competitions. One thing I do know, one ingredient, people do well generally who are confident. You know, if you go, if you go out on... That's true is, about life. I was going to say, that's true of concerts too. If you walk out on stage and you think, you know, I'm great, you're probably going to make a big impression. We're talking about Rolf Schulte, let's talk about Rolf. You know, Rolf is, and does not come out on stage as the sort of Paganini-esque kind of... Uh, you know, no, or, or take another one, a different kind of, in some ways, a similar kind of artist, or off the, the great Estonian violinist, um, uh, Gidon Kramer. Um, but when they walk on stage, they nevertheless radiate a certain personality, confidence, uh, presence, which is there. It's, 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 and an easiness about him. He always yeah, seems so easy. Yes, even, he holds his bow unlike any other violinist who's ever lived. But I've heard I, that. Oh, he, I'm sure. And he's been told that more times than he could count. Sure. But that's just, that's just him. That, that, we, we develop ways to play that suit our anatomy, that suit our personality, but also that suit what we're trying to get, what, we're, what the kind of sound we're trying to get. What our, I have a very highly articulated style of playing. I, I value what they... Je perle, it's called a French pearled sound. Um, you know, very, very distinct pearly kind of sound over smoothness. I mean, you know, if so it's, you you sacrifice smoothness. Uh, you for know clarity. what? I know nothing about music, but I I heard that. Okay. When listening to okay. you play. So okay. So the question is, do I did I develop my way of playing because I like that, or do I like that because it's the way I play? See, I don't think there's any answer to that question. That's I think that that's just um, you know, and and it's not a is it is it something that you it feels good to do it that way, or yes, that, that's the sound. That's that you, the it's the sound I like. I'm attracted to it. Okay, I'm if a, we were to play a piece that's very pearly of yours right now, just a little segment, what, what would it be? Chopin Fourth Scherzo, something I've recorded. Chopin Fourth Scherzo, although that's not on any studio recording. Um, uh, there, there is a recording that has that. Um, well, for, well, Fifole, but that was when I back when I was a kid. My specialty. Um, Practically anything, um, any Chopin, okay. Pretty much any Chopin, because and, and Chopin is a good would be a good case in point, because everybody plays Chopin. I mean, practically there have been pianists, Serkin, Fisher, who played very little Chopin. But the fact is, is that um, Chopin is sort of God's gift to pianists because um, he's as great an instrumentalist as like someone like Paganini, but he's also one of the great composers. So we that, that's a total gift. I mean that we have both. Someone who is a totally idiosyncratic writer for the instrument, but at the same time is also a great composer. Ask me who my favorite pianist was, just point blank. I probably, if I didn't think about the answer, I would say Rubinstein. And um, Rubinstein's playing is not especially known for its its uh, articulation. He, he could certainly articulate, but that's not what that's not the big thing. Big thing in Rubinstein's playing was just the communicative quality. Rubinstein, when you heard Rubinstein play, it was like he was playing for you, and 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 he was talking to you, and uh, that's why Rubinstein never 
was successful on recordings, as some people, because that element was lacking. I was talking to Mark Kaplan about, um, and I, I did a two-parter with him. We were at Juilliard together. Okay, you, you know Mark. Oh yeah. Okay, we were talking about performances that you thought were successful, and it's like you finished and you went, that was really, ugh, and the audience didn't respond. Mm -hmm. As a, and, and then the other side is a performance that you went, ugh, and the audience went, yeah. Absolutely. Can you um, have a story about that? Oh, yeah. completely. The most egregious one I have is the latter case where I, was in, I even remember where it was and what piece it was. So that made a big impression on me. It was in Bari, which is the capital of Puglia in southeastern Italy. And I was playing, I don't know, it was a mixed program, I think. I don't think it was at all. I don't like monographic programs very much. But I played the fourth ballade, speaking of the fourth ballade, a piece I've played hundreds of times and I'm never happy with it. But that time I was really unhappy. So much so, there was the last piece on the first half, and I locked myself in the dressing room and looked at the mirror and said, what did you do? How could you be so, you know? And I, I was really, I, I don't, I'm not a prima donna. I don't suffer from stage fright, especially. I'm not, you know, somebody they have to drag out onto the stage. I'm not, you know. Like, you don't throw up before no, you I'm not like Radulupu. I don't throw up before I play. I don't know. I've never done any of those kind of things. My knees don't shake, my, you know. But um, I was really, really, really upset. Well, after the concert, people say, oh, your fourth ballad was magnificent. I, 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 and of course, the problem is that you have to learn, and it took me a long time to learn, that in cases like that, the audience is always right. Mm. Now, you may listen to it later and say, God, it sucked. But the point is, is that the last thing you should do is say, oh, it was awful. First thing, it's a slap in the face, the person giving you the compliment. Oh, yeah, the best to just be quiet, I imagine. To say thank you. But there is a deeper truth, that's just being politeness. The deeper truth is that the reality of a concert is the listener. And if the listener is excited and moved or changed, I mean, I, you know, one thing, I'm, I'm very blessed about this. Now this time I, I did know I had played well. Um, I was playing a Beethoven cycle, one of my very first ones, and it was in um, a little town in northeastern Italy called Udine. And um, I had, no, this was not a Beethoven cycle. I had finished a Liszt cycle. And the pre presenter had just hired me to play, come back the next year and play a Chopin cycle. And so he went on stage and announced that um, I was going to be coming back the next year and play six Chopin recitals. So I'm in my dressing room and this old man comes backstage. And this is a real, this very feeble with a cane, tottering, had a very bad tremor and a weak voice, and he comes back and he says, Maestro, I want you to know that you have given me a reason to live another year. And that's the best thing that ever happened to me as a performer. Wow. That's, that, that's an easy answer. That's the best thing that ever, uh, you know, if you can do that, then that's, it doesn't get better than that. Yeah. The concert happens in the listeners. Yeah, precisely. The reality of the concert is the listener's reality, right. not not ours. Um, um, there's something that Uninsky told me, and uh, talked about when trying talking about practicing. And we just got a little tiny bit yeah, of rain. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to just throw this over here. I think we're okay though. Um, he, I, he was very concerned that I become one of these people who practices mechanically. You know, people practice with a, with a, with a computer screen open on the thing or watch television or stuff like that, or, you know, and they, they just do it as an exercise of rote. And he says, no, when you practice, the music belongs to you. The, your relationship with the music is made while you practice. You, 
make love to the music when you practice. You have an argument with the music when you practice. You have a, a, a deeply personal, emotional, invested relation with the music while you practice. When you perform, the music no longer belongs to you. You are making a gift of it to the listener. So, so in a way, when I'm um, practicing, then I'm the judge. When I'm performing, they're the judge. And now let's hear a, a little bit from Chopin's Fourth Ballade in F minor, played by Jeffrey Swan. Do you listen to the audience while you're playing? Do you hear them at all? Alas, <laughs> yes, sometimes. That's that's a big variable. That, that, that's a hard one. To, I, I admire colleagues of mine. Maurizio Pellini is that way. It's unbelievable. Maurizio Pellini was playing at Carnegie Hall once. He's a good friend of mine, too. And and a gentleman had, a, I think, a heart attack in the front row of Carnegie Oiga Hall. Vault. And the, the Oiga Vault is right. And the ambulance came, and the stretchers came, and they and it was a... And he kept on playing, which I thought was really admirable. So I went, when I went backstage and said, Maurizio, I was really admired your, your ability. To, you know, it was a, he said, what do you mean? He wow. Said, he didn't even know. He hadn't noticed, which is just incredible. It's right in front of him. Um, I mean, it's true. In concert halls with footlights, people don't recognize this, unless you've spent a lot of time on stage and as an actor. Um, it's much harder to play in small halls, untraditional halls, halls without footlights, without proscenium stages, because you're so aware of the audience. You know, the little girl keeps moving her leg back and forth. The guy who reads the program, um, which is a terrible sign. Um, you know, you, you, whereas if you're playing in a place like Carnegie or any really old-fashioned hall with footlights, you can't see the audience. You can't see anybody. You can hear them. Oh, sure, I hear every cough from some, some performances. Every cough is like a stab in the heart. The other side of the coin, though, is I also hear their silence, and that's wonderful. Like, you know, when you've done a, a phrase and it ends and there's a pause, and you feel that the audience is breathing with you, that there's this silence. Well, those are the those are the great moments, and that's worth any number of standing ovations. You know, standing ovations have a very artificial aspect to them sometimes, a very ritualistic aspect. Yeah. But that there's that that's real. That's authentic. It's the same. Genuine. It's the same in, in theater. Oh, absolutely. It's the it's the moments when you're all silent together in the moment in of the, the moment, emotion. Exactly. Precisely. When you know the phrase ends and there's this thing and. Yeah, sure. That's yeah. that's just the greatest. You hear the silence. Yeah, you right. feel the silence. And oh, sure, that's yeah. the payback moments. Yes. <laughs> it looks like it. It may start raining. I, I I I mean, we're out here out in the open. I had one question that I I wanted to ask okay, you. Okay, please. And um. And it it has to do with uh, the fact that there are many. With the lecturing, the lectures that you do at Bayreuth, um, in uh, in Germany. Uh, but also on, here, on, I, I had and, one on Saturday for yeah, the Boston Wagner on, on Society. Richard, Richard Wagner uh, yeah. lectures that you do. Um, so we have artists that are enormously talented, Woody Allen, but flawed. 
they, 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 they have problems. Um, and as I said, you're known for your lectures on Richard Wagner um, through the Society of New York and the Bayreuth Festival in Germany. Do you distinguish his documented anti-Semitism well, with his artistic work? Have you, you, have you struggled well, with that? Or this, is that this, is, this is a very timely question, very, very timely, because, of course, right now, um, you know, the, the, some pieces of Debussy have come under uh, fire that we shouldn't play them because the titles, at least, are uh, racist stereotypes. And, and, and of course, but also James Levine, who just passed away. And um, so th- this, this, that's a very, very difficult question. And one that whatever you answer, you're going to raise a certain amount of controversy. But I speak completely sincerely. First thing, to me personally, when it comes to Wagner, you know, I come from a family of Orthodox Jews, and I still consider myself very definitely Jewish. And um, if I allowed myself, I generally don't, to read some of Wagner's writings about Jews, I would get extremely upset. Um, I am, in the case of Wagner, fortunate in that I discovered Wagner when I was a little kid in Dallas by chance, and it was like the real, like never any other experience with any musician or any art in my life hit me like he did. and. Um, I didn't know anything about Wagner as a Nazi. Or, I mean, well, he wasn't a Nazi. He died, he died exactly 50 years before they came into power, and he was certainly not a fascist. But Wagner as a anti-Semite, Wagner as as an inspiration to the Nazis, let's say, or as a they they utilized him, they took advantage of him. Um, and, and any of that controversy, I was totally unaware of it. So it would have I became aware of it after I was already hooked. So it became a, a very much a moot point. And and to me, to deny some of the absolutely greatest music ever written, greatest theater too, but greatest music ever written, um, because it's tainted by the horror of, 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 of anti-Semitism, racism, but also the specific of, of, of Shoah and, and, and World War II, would be to give Hitler a victory. It would be as if he wins. That, you know, I, I have to deny myself uh, um, uh, this, this great music. So from my personal standpoint, um, it, it's the, it's the, I can separate, at least in the Wagner case, and in most cases, and certainly God knows in the Debussy case, the value of the music with the, um, the, the, the other ramifications. Um, uh, the, the, I guess it becomes a big problem, first thing, um, the intent. If I felt that any of Wagner's actual works of art were racist or fascist... They've been or, described that way. Yes, but by people who are basically arguing backwards. Uh-huh. Sure, you can find it. I mean, also, even that, like, of course, I mean, what about Oliver Twist? What about um, the Brothers Karamazov, has that, where actually the, the blood libel, the Pesach blood libel is, is right out there in it. Um, I mean, it's in an episode, and it's kind of, but it's still, it's, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely out there. Um, and, 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 you know, uh, Oliver Twist, I mean, uh, Fagin is called The Jew 300 and something times in that book. Um, it's a tough one. It's, it's just, I think that the important thing is that things have to be contextualized and discussed and looked at. And you have to respect people's personal responses. I can, if you are studying the history of music, you cannot ignore Wagner because he is practically the most influential composer, one of the four or five most influential composers that ever lived and the most influential composer on the other arts. No composer influenced 
writers, philosophers, painters, sure. et cetera, as much as Wagner. You know, the whole symbol, the symbolist movement, Ibsen, um, uh, you know, Proust, Joyce, Thomas Mann, all that stuff. No, no. So you can't ignore him. You cannot just say this guy is is, is rubbish and should be uh, designated to the rubbish heap because you can't understand the history of of, of of Western culture without him. Now, but I guess the thing to do is is to try to have enough knowledge to be able to be able to put it in some kind of a context and understand it, um, to, you know, to ex- to accept it. Now, if on the other hand, look, can I listen to with equanimity? Um, Prokofiev's cantata on the glory of our holy father, and he doesn't call it holy, of our, of our, what's the word exactly, translation, our, our glorious father, Yosef Stalin, Can I li- or that opera Simeon Kenya that they did one time in New York, which is, again, a glory of Stalin. Can I listen to those pieces? No, I can't. I, I get literally sick to my, that, because the piece itself. Well, it's rhetorical. It's, yeah, uh, it's yeah. right. It's it, the intent of the piece is that. But does that make me unable to listen to Prokofiev? No. I don't think Prokofiev believed it, for right. one thing. I think he right. was doing it's just hack work. So, I mean, when it, when it comes to Woody Allen, I, I know that some people will not watch his films, but he's made some brilliant films. Sure, if the, film's, <clears throat> if the film is good, I, I love his early films. I don't know his later films as well, and I don't think they're as good as a lot of the earlier ones. I mean, up through, certainly, like Crimes and Misdemeanors. That's fantastic. Your Hat and Her Sisters. Oh, yeah. um, these are, you know, priceless movies. I mean, but I have no idea... If he's guilty, how guilty he is, whether any of that stuff, and I want to go into it. But the the main thing is is that um, I do believe, and I guess this is the short answer to very long answer yes. to your question, <laughs> which is that ultimately the, the work of art has a life of its own. Okay. And that it's I separate it from the um, the artist. Okay. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for that answer. I, I, I said that was the last question, but I have another one, and that is, when you're not listening to classical music, what are you listening to, and do you play any other kind of music besides classical music? Not well. <laughs> no, not really. No, I'm a terrible jazz player. I play some jazzy pieces, but that's not. But I'm not good at it. Um, do you enjoy it? I enjoy listening to it, but not playing it. I don't really... I, I mean, I, I'm too... You know, I've been doing it so long. I mean, playing the piano... I really don't enjoy playing things that I don't do well at this point, that I don't feel like that I, you know, so, But no. you do listen to jazz. Yes, o- but only live, and I get frustrated with it, but I love it. I love it, I just get frustrated because I find that it's so extraordinarily conservative, formally conservative. Every jazz piece is basically has the same form, the same tempo, mm-hmm. the same um, gestalt, sort of, in form in a general sense. And so it can be wonderful, fantastic, virtuoso, beautiful, moving, but I find it remarkably sane. But, but I'm, they probably would say the same thing about me. So, well, I don't think they would have... Maybe, maybe I should get, get you together with my friend Charles Tolliver, who's a great uh, jazz trumpetist. So this, this has been just uh, wonderful. Um, if we were to go out on a piece of yours in this program, what would you like us to play? Well, this not this is an old one. I mean, it's back from like 1991 or something like that. Beethoven Opus 101. I'm proud of that one. One of the only ones I really like the Beethoven Sonatas. Thank you, thank you, Jeffrey Swan. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. This, this has been a lot of fun. Is Being there, able to sit in the park is already. Yeah, a we got we got a little uh, little. Um, well, a tiny bit. Now it's sunny. A little again, bit so. of rain, and now the sun's coming out again. And I think the the equipment. And now Jeffrey Swan performing Beethoven's Piano Sonata Number no. 28 in A Minor. Opus 101.